You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. I'm your host for today's show, Allison Jones. Today we are pleased to welcome Dr. Tina McGinnis, professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Nursing and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She has a history of working with veterans through the Veterans Administration Nursing Academic Partnership for Graduate Education. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. McGinnis. Thank you very much for um, allowing me to be here. We're pleased to have you. Can you tell us how you got started working with veterans? So I had the great fortune of being um, engaging in undergraduate clinicals at Old Dominion University, which uh, is also happens to be the site of the world's largest Navy base, and we did a lot of our clinicals there. And uh, they have an excellent system of care, and I'm very grateful for those experiences. Also, I would say that marrying an Army officer in 1983 gave me the lived experience of uh, becoming a military spouse and family member. And we have uh, crisscrossed the nation. We've been to many Army posts. and, and also, um, he continued his service uh, after uh, September 11, 2001, because of the great need that there was for uh, our armed forces. So I've heard you mention the term veteran-centric care mm-hmm. previously. Can you tell our viewers what that means? So there's a lot to learn about veterans, and specifically Um, The RN, who's caring for a veteran, and whether you work at the VA or not, you really have to become knowledgeable about uh, veteran-centric care because we have so many in this state, several hundred thousand at least. And if you work in the South, there are about the same ratio. There are very many uh, veterans who are from the Deep South. And... So veteran-centric means understanding some of the basics of the era that the veteran serves. So you, Marin uh, becomes uh, interested in taking a military history. And there are different branches of the service. There are Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and Coast Guard. And uh, all of these different services and the era that they served incurs a type of risk to health. So um, you kind of become curious, uh, and and you ask the veteran, uh, you you may want to say thank you for your service. Some veterans might respond to that by saying, well, you didn't even know what I did in the service. However, they often are happy to say what what they did do. And, And so by asking them what did you do in the service, you can start that therapeutic relationship. And they do a lot of different things. There are many military occupational specialties. And uh, for example, I'll just, uh, if you were a truck driver in Iraq, you had the highest mortality rate because of the phenomenon known as improvised explosive devices. And so it sounds innocuous being a truck driver, but indeed many of those truck drivers lost their lives. That's so devastating. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. In terms of mental health issues, what kind of issues do veterans face? So era of service tells you more about what sort of issues that veterans face. Um, For example, if you were in either Korea or uh, Vietnam, then you may be exposed to Agent Orange. Now, Agent Orange is something that seems to lower the... um, uh, 
lower the, uh, increase the risk, I'm sorry, for uh, various types of cancers. For example, especially respiratory cancers is a high rate of sarcoma for veterans of, of those two errors. Um, there's also a high rate of prostate cancer. Even the offspring of Vietnam veterans, their offspring had higher rates of spina bifida. So, uh, and then you go on to Desert Storm, for example, that era, which was in the early 90s. And in Desert Storm, uh, there was something called Gulf War Syndrome. And these symptoms may be along the lines of fibromyalgia, uh, cognitive changes, uh, neuropathies, um, and so, uh, and then more recently in Iraq and Afghanistan, there are even uh, infectious diseases which may be uh, uh, contracted in various uh, the deployment areas, which can be something like uh, malaria, something called leishmaniasis, um, f fungal and um, rickettsial infections, which are known to have uh, some sort of uh, host. So, you know, tropical diseases are still not unheard of, in, even, even in, uh, in deployment settings, and even if there are great health care uh, uh, resources there, and there often are. It's a very different place, some of these places. It's so different from what we consider uh, public health here. I heard you mention some cognitive changes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how um, their experience during their deployment can result in cognitive changes and how that can lead to mental health issues? Well, there is such a thing as deployment stress, definitely. And a lot of times, the, I'll just say something from the family perspective, because it is very much uh, a family affair when a, a service person goes to deployment. And let me just say that deployment, uh, deployments have been, the tempo of deployments have been very rapid in the last, since 2001. And that means multiple deployments. And just to say that from a family perspective, and a lot of families feel this way, the period leaving, uh, leading up to the actual deployment is a stressful time because sometimes the family members experience it as abandonment. Of course, it's not. It's service to the country. And in, this, in the last 15 years or so, the focus on supporting family or family support groups for deployed um, soldiers and, and service members uh, has become much more of a big deal, and rightly so, because the stress for the uh, soldier, for example, in when he or she is deployed, is magnified by many times when you have uh, a family member in crisis at home, and that could be a child or a spouse. So I believe the United States Armed Forces are really appreciating the whole family impact. And um, so, but Cognitive changes, let's talk about that. Um, very commonly, well, very commonly there are stressors that uh, are hard to see happening, but then when they return home, veterans return home, you can see them. Um, and one study of a cohort of Vietnam vets said that approximately 30% of those Vietnam veterans would Act, had actually experienced PTSD. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they experienced, experienced it for the whole 30 years. And PTSD being? I'm sorry, post-traumatic stress disorder. Thank you. Um, which is, um, let me say something about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a condition, a psychiatric disorder, which I believe uh, is on a continuum. I think there's a post-traumatic stress response. And required for a diagnosis of PTSD is that something very upsetting, very fearful and dangerous has happened. And that can be that you were almost killed in, in combat or in a training vehicle accident or <clears throat> maybe if you're a Navy diver, you incurred injury at the depths of you know it, the diving. Um, and it can also be witnessing uh, the dangerous, a dangerous situation. It can be witnessing the death or severe injury or minor injury of your battle buddies because it is definitely, life is so fragile and things happen with large loud machinery for example, uh, jumping out of an airplane because you're an airborne uh, ranger uh, that do not happen in normal everyday lives in the United States. But to say that uh, witnessing these things is, uh, is something I want to emphasize because of the close bonds formed by uh, uh, service personnel who are deployed. They, they fight for each other. They keep each other safe. Their focus is uh, on one another and they really value the safety uh, of, of their uh, small groups. It's a tribal bond is formed and that's been known that, that human beings do that for many hundreds of, of years, uh, millennia actually, but uh, it's very, very important. So. If you're a nurse in Frankfurt, Germany, and somebody was injured in uh, an explosion in Afghanistan, one of the most common things that they'll ask about is their buddies. Now, witnessing violence doesn't just happen if you're a veteran. Witnessing violence can happen uh, across the world, and a lot of people have been exposed to trauma in the USA. Some of these people, um, are, they go on to be in the United States Armed Forces. The issue to think about when you have, uh, because adversity in childhood is, is real, and adverse, adverse childhood experiences, which it, that's a very interesting study that's uh, continued by the Center for Disease Control, um, it's, uh, it, they take account of what happened to you as a child, and often we think of sexual and physical abuse. Uh, another uh, risk factor for adverse childhood experiences is incarceration of a family member, um, and not having enough to eat and drink. Uh, there are many adversities in childhood, and so when you have uh, someone like that, they are at risk for all sorts of bad health outcomes. And the most interesting for me amongst these health outcomes is you have a significantly higher uh, incidence of lung cancer if you have high adverse childhood experiences. Uh, controlling for smoking. So, it, it, but it's not just lung cancer, there's so many different outcomes. So then when you have a veteran who maybe has um, had these adversities in childhood and then they leave their maybe chaotic childhood families and they go to join the service to do a noble thing which is serve their countries. Um, sometimes it's their way out of the chaos because the United States Armed Forces is very interested in their mission and achieving their mission. Other times um, it creates additional uh, trauma especially if they've witnessed violent events. So with respect to 
uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, I believe that you really have to think in terms of um, the big picture. And then to make a diagnosis of PTSD, you have to have a condition called uh, intrusive re-experiencing, also known as flashbacks. And then you also need to have a sense of uh, that the veteran, in this case, is experiencing hypervigilance. And that means scanning the environment. So always scanning the environment for something uh, that may be uh, cause danger. And if you talk to veterans, they will say, I realized I had PTSD when, for example, I first experienced road rage. You know, I didn't have road rage before I go over there, but I came back and that's what I had, and I noticed a difference in myself. And a lot of times families will tell the veterans that they're different. But so if you have these... Um, these sorts of symptoms. It produces uh, changes in your mood and your affect, meaning you may have a much more negative mood. You could have a uh, major depressive disorder diagnosed along with PTSD. And also, you could um, become more irritable and uh, aggressive, and hence the road rage in that case. Uh, it is a, a complex uh, diagnosis. So what recommendations would you have for healthcare providers who are treating these veterans who may be experiencing such issues as PTSD in terms of maintaining a healthy work-life balance? Mm -hmm. So the good news is that there are scientifically based treatments, therapies, both psychotherapy, group therapy, and psychopharmacology that really work. And usually it's a combination of these therapies that work together. It's no silver bullet, but the, the VA is an excellent place to go for treatment. Um, I would say that they hold the most resources anywhere in the United States. And the fact of the matter is there's no place that's um, better for treatment. And there are several uh, trauma-based therapies actually multiple therapies that are geared toward treating trauma. And the other good news is uh, over 50% of people, of veterans who receive these trauma-based therapies get better. And something about like half of veterans who receive the psychopharmacology get better. But I'd also say um, that nurses who are working with veterans, if they sense the, sense, uh, if they sense the PTSD, or if they sense symptoms of major depressive, that we as nurses have to become uh, sleep coaches and exercise coaches and all of these things work better and, and having an affiliation with people that the veteran feels safe with. Sometimes it's people that they've served with and they have the camaraderie. Sometimes it's a whole new group of people. But, you know, if I could put exercise in a pill for a veteran, I would definitely do that because uh, after you've had some exercise, uh, especially with other veterans, but after you've had, you've exercised the big muscles of your body, it's hard to feel the same stress. But it's way more than that. It produces uh, the neurochemicals in the brain that boost mood, decrease anxiety. And of course, sleep is a really big thing. And so uh, one, one thing I would suggest is that um, that nurses become sleep coaches, all of us, because sleep is so important in the recovery from chronic disorder and managing chronic disorders. And sleep is especially important in uh, for a veteran or any person with PTSD because during sleep, during the deeper stages of sleep, uh, memories of con are consolidated so that there's less uh, intrusive experiencing. So. Uh, 
become a sleep coach. Go to the American Sleep Foundation and learn uh, five or six ways that you can help yourself uh, and, and veterans sleep better. I want to take a minute to focus on um, suicide among veterans and how can nurses maybe help to screen veterans? Are there any tools that they can use to kind of keep a watch for those harmful thoughts? So you may have heard that in, sorry, in 2017 there were close to 50,000 suicides in the USA approximately one million suicides around the world. And the rate, the rate has increased by about 30% in the USA since 2009. So there's an epidemic of suicide. And uh, that's a lot of people in the USA, uh, close to 50,000 who've died from suicide in, in our country. And that greatly exceeds uh, uh, deaths via motor vehicle accidents greatly exceeds homicides, yet we hear about other things, we're more likely to hear about other things than, than suicide. Um, so I would just uh, say that there are many ways to pre prevent suicide, and sometimes people get negative about it and say there's no real way to prevent suicide. There are a whole lot of little things you can do, and one thing is just asking the veteran directly. Uh, are you suicidal? Are you thinking of harming yourself? And there are is a, a graphic we'll share, which are, is the predictive, predictors of suicide. And the first step is in assessing is your, the, a veteran is, are, are, you, uh, are you in pain and hopeless? So chronic pain is a fact of life for millions of Americans, and especially a lot of veterans, because they have been involved in training and deployment activities which have caused you know, changes in their uh, spinal column, for example. Uh, it, their neuropathy, as we mentioned, is a risk factor for so many veterans. I mean, it's a common symptom of so many veterans. So um, you want to know how much, it, how much are they able to do? Are you still functioning? And, and also, um, how is the pain interfering with your daily functioning? The other question for that is how uh, are you how, what do you think about your future? Is it foreshortened? Is your future, um, do you see a future for yourself? What do you see yourself doing in a year? Are there activities that you still enjoy? A lot of times it's a pet. A pet can have life-saving uh, effects, and the research the VA has done on uh, service animals is very, very important. So with respect to that step one, if there's yes on both of those, then you know that your veteran is has a higher uh, consistent uh, higher risk for suicide. And then the second question to ask is, for a veteran you're concerned about, uh, is your pain greater than your <coughs> connectedness? And so that means, has a veteran started to isolate himself or herself? If so. Um, you know, that's, that's a source of concern. And uh, then you get down to the third uh, question, are you capable, are you considering suicide? And for veterans, about 70% of veterans die by firearm suicide. So 
And, you know, a lot of veterans know how to use guns. And uh, especially in the South, a lot of uh, people use guns, and they're highly accessible. So that being said, um, there are things called gun locks. There are removal of weapons. There, It's called decreasing access to lethal means. And that's a very important step for all healthcare professionals. Um, and if you ask, they'll tell you um, one veteran said he was an elderly white gentleman who was in a whole lot of chronic pain and and he was asked uh, do you have a gun and he said it's right out in my pickup truck so you, you really have to be very aware of that if a person is coming into your emergency department uh, how easy is the access to lethal means because it's such a high rate uh, of firearms involved in death by suicide I see we have a question from our audience. Um, does the VA cover all mental health diagnoses for veterans or care for those diagnoses? Uh, very much so. Uh, I see the VA as having, uh, as I mentioned, tremendous resources. They, uh, they do the research behind these trauma-based therapies and, of course, other types of therapies, including traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. Uh, the VA is, has several centers of excellence for uh, what they term polytrauma because it's easy to uh, injure your head and be, let's, let's take the case of an uh, improvised explosive device, you can injure your head and also see someone killed or close to being killed and have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, and in those cases, uh, you know, you really need to marshal your forces and families definitely need to be brought into this. When somebody has an open head wound, it seems to me that uh, the armed forces have very good resources for that. It's coming home and continuing to educate families about how to live the new normal. They've called it the new normal. It's just not the same after a head injury. And even a so-called mild traumatic brain injury can have major implications on memory and, uh, and mood. How do you work with the families of the veterans for those who may, have, may be concerned about their loved ones? So I believe that most clinicians really want to learn about the families, get to know the families, because the family is going through something too. Let's take the case of a, a veteran who, who has been uh, deployed multiple times, and he comes back to the United States, and things aren't just the, quite the same. And I think one thing that uh, a clinician can say to uh, veterans' families and the veteran, you've been changed. You know, even if there aren't catastrophic uh, health issues, uh, say like a head, uh, significant head injury and PTSD, uh, it, you've been changed by the experience of being deployed. And so you work with families by educating them, definitely, and there's a whole lot of education that can, that should occur especially with re respect to specific injuries incurred by veterans. Uh, there are family support groups. There are, uh, I believe a clinician at the VA really likes it when a family comes in because then you get the big picture. Sometimes men can be a little stoic and they may not tell you the whole story. But if you hear these, some of these uh, warning symptoms that we just talked about as predictors of suicide, uh, 
you gain a lot of information upon which to base your safety plan. And of course, uh, the VA believes in something called measurement-based care, where they really target symptoms to, to decrease the incidence of symptoms so that recovery, and I'm talking about significant recovery, is possible. You mentioned earlier that there are different eras mm -hmm. of veterans. Can you talk a little bit about how the mental health issues may differ based on where those veterans served? That's a good question. Um, definitely, I would say, well, I would say Korean era veterans, Korean War veterans, they have called it the Forgotten War. It was brief, only a couple of years, and while many of those uh, veterans now have passed on, they only recently got a Korean War monument or memorial in, in, uh, on the mall there in uh, our nation's capital. Um, so feeling forgotten is not something that is going to help a veteran re to acclimate into their, back into uh, their, their world. Uh, Vietnam veterans, and it's interesting because if you served in Vietnam in the early 60s, you may have had a very different experience than serving later. Uh, maybe 69 to 72, there were, there were a different set of, of uh, dynamics at work. And the issue there was when soldiers were returning, uh, they, they were not welcomed in the same way that our current veterans get welcomed. I think that has really been corrected. And they were called baby killers or they were called uh, all, uh, warmongers, all sorts of names. And that's a very hard way to return. Um, so, and then, uh, and then there are, I would just say that there are sometimes covert operations which are ne necessary to our national security, whereby uh, veterans are called to be to go to very dangerous places. I'm thinking of uh, right now. I'm thinking of uh, operations that are going on in Africa to reduce terror terrorism. That those sorts of situations uh, can't really be acknowledged, but there's significant service there, and there may be um, ha say health risks like uh, I'm say uh, malaria and um, uh, tropical diseases, for example. That definitely need treatment, but uh, it's not well known. I think that we've uh, done a much better job in helping people return to society, helping service members return, and uh, there are still, you know, sometimes there's still stigma associated with it. I heard a Vietnam veteran once say, well, you know, all of us Vietnam vets are crazy. Uh, in fact, you know, whatever crazy means, I think what he was saying was, that uh, there's stigma associated with having served in Vietnam. And it's only been in the last few years where uh, Vietnam veterans are going beyond that, definitely. Um, you've given us some great information already, but can you tell us about some resources that are available for either veterans mm -hmm. or families or even nurses caring for veterans? I would say there are a couple of great websites. The VA has multiple websites that are good. I would recommend the VA um, National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. I think they call it National Center for PTSD. That has some really wonderful graphics. They have stories of veterans. Uh, they talk about it in here in veteran-to-veteran -veteran ways. And um, they talk about it without uh, berating themselves because the ethos is that 
we're going to uh, be warriors. And, and soldiers can be wounded yeah, in that process. Uh, so the National Center for PTSD, at the VA, which is a VA website, uh, Wounded Warriors is dedicated to um, those veterans who served uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they have many wonderful uh, resources on their website. Um, and then I would also say that Brainline uh, is a great website. And Brainline looks at the uh, combination, not just brain injury, but also the combination of uh, the PTSD, for example, and uh, a brain injury. and What's ne- what families and vets should understand about that? It's mm, wonderful. Great websites. Yeah. Um, finally, before we wrap up, can you give us a few takeaways? Things that either nurses or families or veterans really need to remember. I would say treatment works. Now, unfortunately, we still don't really appreciate that, but treatment for psychiatric issues really works. And the VA is a resource for treatment of psychiatric issues. I would encourage uh, all veterans to become engaged in care because you never know when you're going to need them. And it it helps not to be on the edge of a crisis when you go there seeking care. Um, And also I would say that as far as preventing suicide of veterans, suicides of veterans, and the oft-quoted statement is that 20 suicides a day occur from uh, of veterans. That, that kind of really doesn't give us the big picture because um, the actual number of suicides is greater in, in older veterans, which is true across the board, especially when there's just chronic, uh, when there's chronic pain and there's hopelessness, etc. Um, so I would say that uh, there are ways to prevent suicide. There are ways to engage veterans in care. Uh, the VA may not be a perfect system, but I'll tell you, based on my experience, they have some of the greatest treatments for uh, mental health conditions of veterans, and uh, they're improving all the time, and, and I think they'll uh, continue to improve. And we have a lot of veterans to serve, uh, and that is just one terrific resource. Well, Dr. McGinnis, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your expertise with us today. And thank you to those who joined us online. Please join us again for the next Clinical Pearls. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.